Hi, and welcome to the Denmark Game Changers podcast, the weekly podcast focusing on Denmark and the Nordic startup tech ecosystem. I'm your host, James Digby, and we'll discuss insights with founders, VCs, leading figures from corporate tech giants and the governmental sector to give you a snapshot and to find out what will change the game for Denmark and the Nordic startup scene. In this week's episode, we're joined by Attila Shukust, the CTO and co-founder at Airtame, sharing the story of breaking things from early mechanical devices to crowdfunding records in Vegas. We get to hear what it's like being a technical co-founder with all the trials and tribulations of growing and scaling an international company from Denmark. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Denmark Game Changers. With me today, I've got a very special guest, um, good long dear friend of mine, Attila Shukust. Um, he's going to go through the story of what he's done and and where he comes from. But first off, Attila, thank you very much for being on the show with us today. Yeah, thanks, James, for having me. I'm no? very excited. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like it's. Uh, we also tried to take a long time in getting this in, so <laughs> the fact that we managed to do this now, I think, is fantastic. Yeah, it was not easy to schedule it. In not at sure. all. Between <laughs> the two of us, I think, it was a tough thing. So. Thank you very much again for being on the show. Um, Attila, I mean, like, before I butcher your, your introduction and where you come from, maybe you want to tell the, the listeners who you are and, and where you've come from. Yeah. So, as you said, my name is Attila. I'm from Hungary, from Budapest. I grew up there. Um, spent my first 12, 13 years there yep. uh, before I relocated to Denmark together with my mom and my sister. Um, and I've been living in Copenhagen since then. Would you class yourself as a as a Dane or as a as you know? So you've grown up most of your life. You spent it in Denmark, yeah. As opposed to being in Hungary. I guess I'm I'm mixed. I'm half Dane, half Hungarian. I would say. Um, Did you grow up with the Hungarian values um, from from your mother and, and sister being here as well, or was that kind of the Danish way of life and, and eating rye breads and? We, we kind of did both. So we, we took the, the good parts of the Hungarian culture and we also took the Danish culture and kind of adopted it. And I have a lot of friends in Hungary still and also have a lot of dear friends in Denmark. So it's kind of, I have both, both of the best, best of the both worlds. Best of say. both worlds. <laughs> so that's even a, a tough start because of course uh, you, you're now known as the, the CTO and found, uh, co-founder at, at Airtame. Um, we'll get to that story, I'm pretty sure, all the way through. Yeah. But I mean, like, so Hungarian guy, um, raised in Denmark, um, and fell in love with IT, I'm guessing, somewhere along the way. How did that story come about? Yes, I mean, IT actually came for me before even coming to Denmark. Um, it started from my parents. They're both professors, or they were professors in, in the university. Uh, my dad did um, nuclear uh, and nuclear science, or what is it called? Uh, was he a nuclear physicist? Yeah, nuclear physicist, exactly. <laughs> uh, and my, my mom did um, nanotechnology as well. So. so she could make really small nuclear bombs. Is that, a, is that a, no? That <laughs> not, wasn't not exactly discussion that. around the dinner table? <laughs> no, no. Um, so I get that kind of background from, from pretty much all of my family. My, my grandparents were also very much into like, the academia, um, being lawyers and doctors and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, so the w the way I got started with IT was that there was this kind of, uh, I think it was a Christmas uh, gift that I got from my parents, which was my first computer. Okay, what was the first computer? 
So that was a, a, a Spectrum. It was one of those, you know, keyboard computers. Yes. <laughs> uh, where you had the computer built into the keyboard and it had a, a floppy drive and it, it, it had this kind of TV output to your old CRT TVs. Yes. And we basically we weren't allowed to play any games on it. So Even though it had the possibilities. Yes, exactly. Um, so, so my parents sit down and, and, and played with me uh, with the, with the, the, the computer and kind of taught me some things. Uh, of course, as part of their research, they have used computers before and they, they used it to crunch data and to analyze things. So they already had some programming experience there and they kind of helped me along the way, you know, make some small timetable app or something like that. This is back in what, what? Time frame are we talking about? So this is, I think it was like mid '90s, something like that. So this is before Windows and stuff like that. Yeah, pre-operating systems and yeah. yeah. I mean, this was running basic without any, you know, no MS DOS or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) It's just very, very minimal. I actually still have this machine, and a couple of years ago, I revived it. It Uh, still works. It still works. And there was this small. Did you make yourself a timetable app? No, <laughs> that was a small challenge about reviving, uh, like you know, really retro computers and loading a web page on them. So I made a small hack to it to actually load the website from the internet with this computer and render it. So really, so even to this day, you're still tinkering <laughs> with it and playing with it. Yeah, right? it kind of, so, I kind of hold these kind of dear memories to this. So, but that very really kind of sparked then the revolution within yourself of of this is what I wanted to do. Um, was there anything else that kind of caught your eye whilst, whilst growing up? Or was it just then I knew it was going to be within computers? It was, I mean, I always knew that electronics and computers were interesting to me. I, I never wanted to be, you know, a firefighter or, a, I don't know, astronaut or stuff like that. I always so dreams of like a in... seven, eight-year-old Attila wasn't going yeah. into space or you want to be the guy that programmed the stuff that put him into space. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> And I think my parents were also kind of annoyed with me sometimes because I always took things apart, but not always put them together. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of do this still today. <laughs> sometimes. So is that your wife now <laughs> replacing that, saying like, why yeah. can't you put this back together? Or? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I recently did that with my robot vacuum cleaner where I try to reprogram it to be smarter. Um, it, it did turn out to be smarter, but not so functional. <laughs> so so it knew what it was doing wrong basically as opposed to doing it right in the first place yeah i I thought it was pretty dumb so i could make it smarter and and i did but maybe not the right way okay (laughs) and is this like a theme that you you've taken for for yourself so you know you you got your first computer you started playing around and, and kind of with your studies then i'm guessing you kind of force yourself to go into that direction you know, going through the Danish education system as well. How was that for you here? Um, so, I mean, coming to Denmark was pretty tough for me, um, especially because we had some kind of English lessons in Hungary for a while, but we didn't really get that far. So when I actually arrived here in Denmark, I didn't know English, didn't know Danish. So I was so dropped. just knew Hungarian. I it. just knew Hungarian. So I was dropped into an international school and I had some like extra English lessons uh, a lot of times a week um, to actually get me up and running. The good thing was I was actually really good in math <laughs> and some of the other sciences. Uh, and also until I learned the language, I was 
way better than the others because you know when they gave a, an exercise i just sat down and did it and learned it yeah but as soon as i started speaking as well and communicating with others then you know you start chit-chatting and distracting yourself into exactly the world, <laughs> yeah so then the progress also slowed a bit. <laughs> so that's how 14 year old tiller kind of worked out in the end yeah. afterwards um but yeah i think i'm also slightly different than my sister in that sense because my sister is also in sciences uh, she's also now a bioinformat she's into like bioinformatics um but she was always the you know grade a student uh, mm -hmm. in every subject for me i was more kind of the the one that passes just yeah just an average student, but I always had other projects on the side. I always had small projects to keep myself motivated and, and learn. Yeah. Why do you feel that you, you took up those projects along the way? Was it something that where you wanted to keep busy or you wanted to learn more or what was it? I think it's in the end, I'm, over, I'm, I'm very excited about how things work to try to understand them from the ground up. Yeah. And and that's that's kind of what motivates me to take things apart, learn how they function, tweak them, maybe improve them slightly, <laughs> and then try to put them back together and hope that they work. So you haven't always had success of putting things back together, but sometimes it does work, right? It does, yeah. yeah. That's, then that's kind of luckily the real most success. of the times it does. <laughs> you know, when I take something apart and and I put it back together, and then I find out that there's like five screws left, but it still works. I'm I'm always wondering like, what did I? do wrong but <laughs> where is this excess from <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so i think ultimately is that uh, going into it then i think there's that bit kind of baking that that passion of, of doing other bits because you know the story of air tame as well came about where you you were just finished your studies or you were just studying or where, where were you in, in that process yeah i mean Air team started as a hobby project for me, so and that was during my studies. Uh, it was one of the projects that I, I looked at as, as part of... So you of were doing other things as well at the same time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what other things were... projects were you working with? It's been a while, so I don't remember exactly what I had, at, had going on at that point. But it was, <laughs> it was into like peer-to-peer -peer applications... Yeah. Um, I was also excited about like, servers, networks, infrastructure. Oh, with that, then you're also doing some stuff with actually some some big organizations at the same time whilst being a student. Yeah. Um, so maybe we'll share some of those bits and some of those stories of where you're at. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So when I started at university, I, I went there and, and also wanted something on the side. Uh, so my actually my real first job was working in a in a kind of um, what was it called? Um, warehouse, you know, packing items for, for orders. Yeah. Uh, and that was also a, a computer web shop kind of thing. Um, and then I looked around and see, could I actually do something that was more, you know, useful with my time instead of doing that? Don't get me wrong, that was a good experience, but it gave me structure, but it's not exactly super exciting. What, moving box A Boxes to, to uh, <laughs> yeah. packing stuff together. I got a lot of free, free stuff, so that was also nice. Yeah. Do they know about that? <laughs> they do. Oh, they, they do about okay, fair enough. <laughs> so the next thing I looked at was at the university, could I actually do something that provided value there and, and keep me excited and motivated and learn about things? So I joined uh, at DTU, the Danish Technical University. I joined their um, 
of high performance computing group as an IT support person. So I was the one sitting on the help desk, you know, replying people. Telling uh, them to switch off their computer and turning back on again? Yeah, pretty How much. many times a day did you have to do that? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, installing applications, helping them fix issues if they had viruses. But also when I was not doing that at, at, uh, like on a day-to-day basis, I was also having some small projects there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I met a guy who was my boss and he kind of mentored me in this. We had a lot of you know, pizza nights working on servers, installing them, hooking up network equipment, mm-hmm. building networks across locations, uh, and just having these like small fun projects. And I got a lot of inspiration from him and he really helped me to understand how these systems work, how they're built together, and also gave me a lot of, he gave me a lot of ownership to do it myself and, mm-hmm. and help me along the way. And that was super nice. So I think that's also where I learned to be more independent in some of these things. Yeah. So I think you know, building that, that process up, I mean, did that mean that, you know, you, you had the, the capability and bandwidth then to start looking into to something like Airtame already? So when, when you first started with the idea of, of building a, an organization or, or building a product, I'm guessing it was, mm-hmm. because you said it was a hobby product, a hobby project alongside other hobby projects as well. Um, what was it that kind of also then sparked it from going, we're going to take this into being something else? At what point did you say, between yourself, this is the moment? Yeah. So, I mean, the, 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 the way it happened was that we were working on another company together with some of the other co-founders, and Jonas is one of them. Uh, and Jonas is the, the CEO, CEO of Airtime. Yeah. yeah. And we were working in this IT consultancy company. And the idea there was that we wanted to use open source in a more widespread way. Mm-hmm. We wanted to you know, save tax money by creating open source projects across organizations and help them collaborate and share these projects instead of all of them doing their own projects, which are very identical, but they're the same in the end. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that, that worked pretty good. We had a lot of projects. One of them was with the Danish radio. Um, I can okay, tell so you the national broadcaster. Exactly, can tell you more about that. Um, but but in the end, we felt that we lacked kind of this product focus. There was a lot of small projects. Mm-hmm. The motivation from people that we worked with weren't wasn't always there. Um, you know, we were very driven and very ambitious, and some of the people we worked with were more nine to five. You know, I I got my job done. I came in. I sat in my seat and I'm going home mm-hmm. kind of people and and that didn't really inspire us so we started to talk about like could we actually branch out and do something could we make a product and that's when I pitched Jonas the initial Airtame idea which was actually this game streaming service <laughs> which I had in mind so wait a minute this this whole thing was a game streaming service to yeah. start off with Okay, this is... Uh... <laughs> and I mean, my, my, my use case there was that I wanted to stream my games from my desktop gaming computer onto my small low-power netbook over wireless. So that's kind of where it started from. And the, the, the paradox in that is that I probably spend more time coding this solution than actually playing the games. <laughs> so... Of what you wanted to do in the first place. And I still do. So... <laughs> <laughs> 
So it became something that really is a problem for yourself and in, in looking into the convenience of it. But I mean, let's touch upon entertainment a little bit and, and you know, and that story of where you guys went through. So, you know, I think it was the time record breaking, crowdfunding campaigns and, and you know, momentum probably like nothing's ever seen in the, in the last, was it five, six years now? Yeah. So time has flies, right? When, when you're having fun at the same time. So, yes. You know, going through that story, but maybe let's touch upon a little bit more about the stuff with with Denmark Radio. You know, working with them. What's it like working with such a big corporation as a small group of ex-students, still students, um, in a consultancy? But you know, how was that interaction? Yeah, I mean, it was quite interesting. It was our, it was my first consultancy in that way. So I learned a lot about the business so wait, wait, and how that works. Your first ever consultancy to, to consult and get paid for consulting was with the national broadcaster. Pretty much. I mean, yeah. we had a few other projects, smaller ones, but yeah, yeah. yeah. First real one that made sense. <laughs> yes, uh, and I've actually done multiple projects for them. One of them was that. They were going through this digitalization phase where they were taking the old magnetic tapes and then translating them into videos, like digital content for, for the internet. And one of the things they needed was a way to store all that digital or all that magnetic data in a digital form and then convert it to kind of uh, consumable content on the internet. So, I'm guessing, like most listeners, I they'll hear that and go, well, that seems pretty simple, right? You you put it in the machine, you press play or transfer, and then it just happens. Yeah. But I'm guessing at the time, that wasn't there. And that process wasn't really available, even to someone with the resources of the national broadcaster. No, no, I mean, uh, like the project was quite enormous. They had a lot of these tapes uh, going back to the 80s and 70s and 60s. Mm-hmm. So they have a big, big process to to digitalize their content. And the, the problem was that whenever you did this kind of process, it, it created a lot of data. And somehow you mm-hmm. needed to store that data. So that was my task to figure out how to store that data in a cost-effective way um, and ended up building this 200 terabyte server for them, which uh, they could have on site. And I actually put you know the server together myself because there wasn't an easy way to build this uh, from like some guides on the internet and stuff like that. <laughs> Open source two and a half terabyte server. <laughs> yeah, it's two hundred terabytes. Two hundred terabytes. Yes. Sorry. Wow, that's um, some special. Was it? I imagine it being really gigantic, but I'm guessing it wasn't in the end. I mean, it it wasn't even that big, but it had I think it was thirty six drives in it. So, you know, when we first got our first shipment and I looked at it, I'm like, wow, that's that's impressive, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and we also were kind of unlucky because that was when the flooding in Thailand happened and the, the hard drives were produced in one of those factories. So after half a year, about half of the drives failed. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that was the, the time for the tsunami, right? So Yeah, yeah exactly. Then what happened to it? Was it just then shelved and, and then... No, no, no. I mean, I spent some sleepless nights there trying to recover the data and <laughs> and putting new drives and putting some fail-safes in and actually building a second server for them so they have some replication between the two. So. Okay. Is that something that still goes on today, do you know? Or is that a... I mean, I haven't been up to date on the project, but um, a couple of years ago, they're still using it. Uh, so... <coughs> Well, there you go. And and did these, working on these sort of projects, did that instill you with the confidence then that you could do your own company, your own project? Or or where did that come about, do you think? 
Mm, I mean, these projects gave me a, an understanding of myself and what my limitations were, but they didn't give me any kind of you know business sense or yeah. or ideas of how to get funds or kind of any of those. Uh, you know how to set up logistics or uh, supply chain or hardware production or anything like that. Yeah. So I but think those were more trial and error along the way later on. Yeah, I'm guessing so. Even with the team that you put together or, or came together, none of you, I'm guessing, had that experience of no, no um, logistics, shipping twenty five thousand units to countries around the world. You know, taxes and component parts and you know all these other bits but then i think that's something that we'll, we'll i think we should save then for the next section um <laughs> we can jump now to a little um, break um and then the next part we can delve into the story of air tame and how that got started yeah fantastic good. be right back okay and we're back from the break so just before we we teased you a little bit and just saying going into the story of Airtame, maybe we want to you know spill the beans a tiller and and you know see how share with everyone how it got started. Yeah, so yeah, it it it, it started as a hobby project for me, as I said. Um, it was um, kind of this game streaming service where I wanted to stream my powerful gaming computer on a small netbook. I'm guessing that particular element didn't last too long. No, but actually I started this project in around 2011. So for two years it was kind of lingering in my drawers and whenever I had some free time I would take it up and do something on it and then put okay, it back so again. Okay, so it wasn't like a big brainwave and say this is it, this is the next big thing and everything needs to go into this. No, no, not at all. Like It, it was just kind of this fun side project. I never thought it would be a business in the end. Uh, so, so the way it actually started was that I, I pitched this to Jonas, uh, our CEO at Airtame, and we started talking about like what could the use cases be because we knew that this game streaming was very niche and like it it solved my need of course <laughs> that I had, but <laughs> but it, we didn't think that it would be very widespread, and we knew that we wanted some sort of product um, you know focused uh, company. We we looked at actually we looked at some other alternatives as well. So as I said, in terms of the storage that we built for this national uh, radio station, mm-hmm. um, we looked at if we could commercialize that more as well. So that was another option we were exploring. Um, but but in the end, we weren't that attached to that project. That was a consultancy project and it was fun and learned a lot with it and got a good success story out of it. But it wasn't really ours, you know. Yeah, it wasn't. That was that scalable. one of the driving factors of, of you and the partners to, to kind of say, we, we want to do something ourselves? Or Yeah, yeah, it was like we wanted to do ourselves and we wanted to, like, we want to be focusing on one product and want to have a more long term kind of, you know, team around it and get this energy and this, you know, people that are driven, that are ambitious mm-hmm. and, you know, like that, all that sort of thing that we were lacking on the consultancy side. And that's how it, it all started. Um, and then we met the two co-founders, uh, Marius and Brian. Uh, at that time, they had this video co- uh, production company. 
and we worked with them uh, to create this like Lego stop motion video about open source in our previous, you know, the consultant yeah, yeah. company. So that's where we met them, and and we saw that they're super cool guys, and they had a lot of experience with creating videos, which definitely is something you need for a crowdfunding campaign, right? So so that was in the back of your mind, like. You know, so you and Jonas got together and said, "Well, we want to do this, and we're going to get it crowdfunded." Yeah. That was the route to market first. It wasn't the case of where you're going to go. We want to pitch this. We're going to work on this a little bit more because it's two years in at this point. Yeah. So, so this was around 2013, and crowdfunding was still very hot and very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, feel like also crowdfunding was more used to launch products and get market feedback and learn about users and was in a more kind of early stage compared no. to now where it's more a marketing platform where people, is it really yeah, yeah. It, it feels like most campaigns nowadays have everything prepared they already more or less mass producing and they use it as a way to spread the word yeah um, instead of you know, what we did and what many other companies did back in the day where it was super early stage, you know, maybe even earlier than you should have went on the platform. And yep. It was just an idea or some like some very early concepts. Maybe I should go off on a tangent on that and kind of cover that particular area because I think mm-hmm. that's also a really good point to talk about. Like, is it because that we saw so many failures that came through crowdfunding that it, that it tainted it so much that do you feel that the market just said no, we, we just refuse to kind of go into this now and they have to be a lot more ready and a lot more focused or 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 how is it? Yeah, I think that's that's a large part of it. I feel like there were quite some big projects and some quite big spectacular, you know, failures <laughs> along the way uh, where some projects, they were completely a fraud, others had good intentions but never could deliver yeah. or they overpromised in a way that you could never you know actually do it um and and in some way it also feels like people lost trust a bit on Mm -hmm. on crowdfunding due to that so now now all the 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 new crowdfunding projects they need to prepare a lot more and they need to show that they are a lot better prepared they know about the risks they know about what's going on they have success stories beforehand yeah um which i guess we could debate if it's a good thing or not because it probably shies away a lot of com- companies and you know startups that wanna do crowdfunding, but they are not at that stage yet. Yeah, so I thought you know for for me, crowdfunding could be this space where you're you're getting great ideas off the ground yeah. and being a part of something. But of course, I think it goes from a line of just saying I can help prototype these few elements, but when you prototype to the masses. That, I'm guessing, also doesn't work either. No. Um, and the other thing is the expectation that people have because a lot of people use crowdfunding as a shop. Like, oh, this mm. is a cool product. I'm going to buy it and I'll get it. And this is also a cool product. So it's not that they don't, they don't see it as a contribution, as a donation, as a, a, a kind of money that you give to creators or companies to cr- to actually go through the process, but they see it as a web shop where you just... This is ready. I'm gonna no. click, and I'll get it in a week. Kind of, you know. If you put Do you it think it, it it needed to go that way, or would you still like to have seen this kind of creative element still still be there as part of it? I think there should be a better balance for it. I think, uh, of course, some kind of validation that the idea is is solid is probably required to some extent. 
-hmm. So you avoid people that are dreaming too big and for sure they can't deliver. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it's also like it, it has gone too far now where it's it's only used for very polished and very finished products mm -hmm. uh, with uh, like videos that cost, I don't know, half a million dollars to make, you know, wow. yeah. very, very sophisticated. Yeah. But even so, you, you said that at the time that, you know, when I think Airtame closed up, it was 1.3 million of the first round, near thereabouts. And that at the time was the largest in Europe on yes. Indiegogo of all time. Yeah. Before that point, no one had ever reached that, that amount. No. Nope. I mean, maybe go through that story. I mean, so you launched, I think you... Did you do anything special that you feel for the very beginning? Of course, you you got now a team together that, that does the video side. You've put a campaign together. How long did it take you? Was it overnight or no? Definitely not. So the way that well, we started, you didn't get drunk and just went put this online <laughs> and then away we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, the way that we started was that first we looked at how do we actually want to fund this project and. We, we were very excited about crowdfunding, both Jonas and me and Brian and Marius, they have backed other projects before. Uh, so we, we already knew about the opportunity and we we're a lot more excited to you know get market feedback, to get some cost already existing customers and also to get money that, you know, free money without any equity that we would have to give away. So we were pretty set from the beginning to do crowdfunding. Yeah, um, and we spent a lot of time preparing content for it. I think we spent three, four months, you know, putting a campaign together, including graphics, the text, uh, this video which we recorded the billion times. Uh, I was one of the main stars of the video, and I'm not a not the most, you know, like video friendly person on okay. the planet. <laughs> So, what was so you saying a billion times was it just literally not getting the lines right or just yeah you not know like retakes that, that and like oh show more ambition show more passion like <laughs> things like that <laughs> did it feel like you're recording or auditioning for a Johnny Ive uh, <laughs> section on Apple yeah, pretty much yeah <laughs> <laughs> you should put more pressure on that word or like you know like very 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 um, detail oriented and I think it was worth it as well because this is also what gives the first impression to people when they see the campaign and it needs to be genuine and honest but it also needs to explain to them what the value you bring and what is kind of concept uh, in a very short time because you yeah. can't just have a two-hour video where you blabber on about stuff we can do but it just be rubbish yeah we will never uh. get anywhere. <laughs> um, so you know you spent a lot of time on that um, and, and kind of launching the campaign itself and did you gather any any really you know material beforehand and an audience beforehand or was it just straight off here we go so so the first thing we wanted to do was to launch on kickstarter actually and not indiegogo um and at that point kickstarter wasn't in denmark so then we had to figure out how do we get on kickstarter so we created a uk-based company uh, you had to do all like the formal setup of that and register and get a re local representative and things like that um, and then we submitted the project on Kickstarter and we waited and waited and nothing happened. After you set up a company, after you've done all yes. these other bits. So the campaign was prepared, everything was ready and then we were like, what's happening? And they have this review process and that review process for us took, I think we waited like six weeks and nothing happened. And we pinged them everywhere on the platform, on Twitter, on emails, wherever we could, but we just didn't get any reply. 
and then at some point we just said like okay we, we need to do something else like it's not working and that's when we started looking at indiegogo as kind of the second best platform to do this mm-hmm. and then we, we 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 put it on indiegogo and pretty much it was ready to launch at that point so so then we started thinking about okay what is the launch plan like we we knew that these platforms they have this algorithm that you know shows the most active and the most hot projects yeah. so we needed to make sure that we appeared there so we started engaging our friends and family to you know be ready when when we launched a project to back the project uh, so we we actually get some traction in the really yeah. beginning but it was all friends and family it wasn't like a an investor you had lined up or someone no, that you no, knew no. to put money in it was no. just help me if you can do yeah and it was pretty much like the first 24 hours or 48 hours like we needed friends and family to contribute to the project so it it looked really active and yeah. then it would be rated high up in the in the algorithm but you didn't set a small target i believe it was, it was actually quite a big amount that that you feel that it could have taken you through the very initial push for what you wanted to do yeah yeah i mean the initial target was hundred thousand dollars so it wasn't that much in the mm-hmm. end it was also a few thousand units so it was also more kind of manageable right in the end <laughs> Yeah, so we thought a, at that point. Let's say that. A, <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing a few things came along the way that that, that kind of changed that perspective. But you know, as we, as we roll back, it's 1.3 million led to also a, a lot more devices than you ever thought you would do. Yeah. So yeah. You, you went from a thousand to 2,500. Yeah. I'm guessing over that period. Yeah, I think we ended up with 18,000 in the end, something like that. 18,000 yeah. devices. Eight, and, uh, and I mean, the campaign, the way it worked was that I think in the first week we were pretty much fully funded. So we reached 100,000. And then until the kind of end of the campaign, we we got around $300,000 in total. Um, but one thing that happened at the end was that we were invited to CES, mm-hmm. uh, the technology show in Las Vegas. Uh, from Indiegogo so we got this opportunity to go there uh, have a kind of booth set up and so on present it to, yep. to, to people and that's where it really took off in the last uh, kind of couple of days at CES Do you feel it was like a mixture of, of everything coming together at that moment in time where you know you see a lot of the the last days the campaigns are typically more funded than most anyway but is it just that you know that, that pressure that that moment in time just after the holiday season is still within holiday January second third fourth where everyone still is thinking about what do we get what are the next new things did you did you feel you rode the wave of that going through um, I think there was, was a lot just- of there was actually a lot of factors I think that was definitely one of them people were still coming back to work and they were still you know, browsing what other cool things are online. They had some time for that. But also the at CES, we got a lot of exposure and we mm-hmm. won this best of CES, um, best of startup, best startup of CES, yep. um, which which also gave us a lot of publicity with Engadget and some of these tech mm-hmm. articles, um, which I think also made a lot of difference as well because then everyone started looking at it. And I remember the last day of the campaign, I had my phone on uh, on vibrate um, and I was receiving an alert every time someone actually made a contribution <laughs> and, and my phone was going crazy, you know. Just the whole night. All <laughs> I think the when way I through. woke up, I had like thousands of messages. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. I mean, so you, know, you then you got to that point where you reached a milestone. 
you have this and did it sink in at that point of what you had to do or what was to be done? Yeah, it was quite interesting. Now reflecting on it, I felt feel like our ambitions were going up as the campaign was more and more successful. So we were also thinking about what else could we do and all of that. Um, and then kind of reality hit when we when the campaign was over and now we were in in this delivery mode. You know, like mm -hmm. how do we how do we make eighteen thousand devices with the right software and ship it to eighty six countries and have people happy about it and use it the way that we imagined? Yeah, uh, and that took a while to to get right. I mean, I remember the first one two years were were super tough. Yeah. Um, you were there. Yeah, part of so, it, so I was also. You have some good memories. This is for that. A <laughs> so you know, I, of course, this is where we know Attila from, and and you know, the stories of going through, and you know, I think also if I also remember the times, um, I remember that last day, that last night of of I think you know trying to make that push of what else was there available, what else could could be auctioned off for happiness for for pushing that extra sale. And I think that. You know, I don't think I woke up the next day. <laughs> I think, <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in, yeah, going through that process of having to deliver units um, to people. I, I also remember, you probably didn't see this on the other side whilst you're busy making it, but uh, seeing some of the emails from, from people of the I happy. saw emails. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I printed one out and framed it, and uh, I, I can't repeat it on here. Yeah. Um, but there it, was also this like T-shirt burning accident on Twitter at some point. <laughs> oh, was that? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, so you know, going through the process, you, it's, I'm guessing it was quite hard to then deliver for a product that not everyone thought was the product eventually. Is yeah. that the case or? Yeah, I mean, in the in the end, with the campaign, we set expectations super high. Um, this is this is actually also before Chromecast was launched, so it was kind of a, a product that was unique in some way on the market, or at least very rare. Um, and you know, with the video, when we produced it, it looked very simple, very reliable. You could do a lot of things, uh, mm -hmm. and and I think people had this expectation and imagination that this is how it will work uh, and of course living up to that expectation in, in real life is very hard when we started to realize that there are so many different environments so many different tvs so many networks you know so many computers with different versions mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. we didn't think that we would need to make our own hardware but we ended up making it anyway because we didn't find a, a good solution for it yeah so kind of the like the initial assumptions that we made, they also broke down to some extent, and we was were that faced due with a to new your reality. success? Do you think, as opposed to, so if you only had a thousand units to deliver, as opposed to eighteen thousand units, do you feel that that it would have been developed differently, or you would have had the time to go through that process, or? Yeah, I think it's it's both due to the success, uh, due to the expectations that we set super high, and also due to our maybe inexperience with launching a product like this. Uh, we learned a lot in that process. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, you, you can't say that, no, I'd never want to go through and get 1.3 million in 60 days ever again. That that's You're going to say yes again, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. 100%. But... What do you think you would have done differently during that point 
to to kind of mitigate some of these things from where you are now, five, six, seven years down the line? I mean, honestly, if I had all the experience I have now, I would look more at how we plan the project, what kind of um, kind of expectations did we set for people, what kind of requirements did we have, mm -hmm. what were the risks, how we would manage them better. Uh, for the people itself or for your consumers and your customers? or Both. But very much for the project, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not sure, you know, designing our own hardware from scratch uh, was the right approach, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, some of these things. Uh, also, like, what kind of competences we need in the team. I think a lot of it, we we winged it, you know, we, mm -hmm. we tried it, and then we saw that, oh, there's, there's more to do here, so maybe we should hire a person for that. Uh, and this is also kind of a funny thing uh, that I realized that, you know, when you're four, you think you can do everything. And I even get that sometimes with my family, like now we're something hundred plus people and they're asking like, what is all this hundred people doing? You know, can't you just go and sell it yourself and do it yourself? Like, <laughs> is that your family at home? Is that Some, sometimes, <laughs> like they, they don't always get it, you know, <laughs> but that's kind of the general theme that, that, that we went through that, you know, we didn't have, for example, QA for a long time. Uh, yeah. And it's such an important part now. But back then, we just had some developers and and QA. Sorry, just uh, for for quality listeners, so quality assurance. assurance. Yeah. And that quality assurance is that on the hardware. Are you talking about on the technical side, the software side, or it's on everything basically on yeah. the whole product to to make sure that whatever we deliver is actually good quality and people experience it the way that we want to experience it and not you know, full of bugs or... Were you releasing up. code at the beginning just to get it up there so you were able to hit functionality and say, you know, because you had a long list of things that you said that could be able to be done. Yeah. I mean, that, I'm guessing that changed as, as you kind of went through and, and the focus from instead of selling into homes, selling into organizations and seeing the power of a cross-device culture coming yeah. in so i'm guessing you know the problems with the home is that everyone has typically the same operating yeah. system um throughout the partnerships and, and i'm guessing in the office that you don't have that it, it, that move there how did that fit with with your with your eighteen thousand devices <laughs> that were ordered beforehand was that yeah. something that, that turned on their heads and went well wait a minute or do they see the potential what could be done with it as well yeah i think that's a good question i mean to maybe to start off like the first thing that I realized during this project was that, you know, when, when we launched the campaign, I was pretty sure that technically it was possible to get things done. So it wasn't really, you know, some, there are some other com campaigns where they promise a lot and then there's actually no way to do it. Like it's physically impossible. So in our case, I knew that it was, it was possible. So that wasn't really a question of, possibility or not it was more a question of when and how and who no. does it right and how we prioritize that um so we in, in the campaign we ended up you know you could say promising a lot of things that we thought people want and what we wanted um, and we didn't deliver all of them and of course there were some people angry about it uh, i would be angry about it as well like yeah. honestly uh, and 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 as you also touched upon this i think part of this also comes from the fact that the campaign that we launched was very much consumer focused you know it was wireless hdmi for everyone you know replace your screen cable at home replace it for 
PlayStation, replace it for whatever. Um, but but I think in this period we learned that it maybe it was a bigger pain for for businesses and education than mm -hmm. for home use. Maybe it was we're solving a different thing than actually replacing the cable in the end. Because when you came out, you're saying Chromecast wasn't there, but they had just launched. So when you were sitting down, going through the idea, going through the motions, um, preparing for a campaign, waiting for Kickstarter, in this time, Google, the big giant, has come up and said, we're going to do the same product, but for homes, and you can send a portion of your screen as opposed to the entirety of your screen. Yeah. And that was actually the side thing for them, side feature for them, because the main feature was how to get your Netflix and HBO and YouTube and whatever on the screen, right? So their mm -hmm. approach to it was slightly different as well, because we were very much focused on screen mirroring as a primary use case, yep. and they were very much focused on media casting, media casting yep. like get that video up, but it wasn't mirroring, it was sending the content or the link or the URL to mm -hmm. the content to the small device. And for some reason or another, they chose the same form factor that we did, this dongle format, that was also creating a lot of confusion for people yeah. because then they were asking like how do you guys compare to Chromecast and why is yours more expensive well you can get it for $35 from Google yeah. and you know of course we had to explain to them that Google is probably losing money on this dongle because their model is to sell services and not the hardware is just an addition to that and our model is to sell hardware so we have to make a living on it but you know it's it's not a market we wanted to compete in in the end no, nor a competitor you wanted to go up against, I am sure. No. no. So then that leads into the story of, of you know, where, where you are with Airtame now and, and flash forward now uh, half a decade with 100 employees. But I think let's take a quick break um, before we jump into that and, and dive into the right, right after the period. Yeah, sounds good. And we're back from the break here with Attila. Attila, before the break, you jumped in and we talked very much about the, the company growing and, and where it is now. So flash forward, you've kind of gone through this kind of startup phase, you've gone through kind of all the early bugs and you're now at 100 people. How was that change from, from being a small startup half a decade ago, just coming out of college, university, into, to now being responsible for 100 lives? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, quite an interesting change and I've been thinking a lot about it, actually. It's it's a lot different than, you know, when we were four and you could just decide on something over coffee and then everyone was aligned and they know exactly what to do. Now, <laughs> now you know, the, the organization is a lot larger. We need to figure out how we structure ourselves, how we work together, what are the workflows and processes we have, how do we communicate, how do we involve people at the right time in the right space. Um, we have also m multiple offices, you know, people working remotely. We have offices in, in here in Copenhagen, uh, our HQ, but we have one in New York. Uh, we have one in Budapest. We're, we're soon opening up an LA office. So a lot of things happening and those changes are very exciting for us, but it's also something we need to be, you know, conscious about and figure out how we want to approach it as a company. Um, I've seen a lot of other companies that grow really fast, 
but they somehow lose their soul and culture in the process. That's actually my next question is how do you feel that you, have you managed to, to retain the culture in some way? I guess it's important, impossible, sorry, to, to retain the culture of four people into 100. But how do you, does that kind of mentality work? I think we've actually done really well or relatively well. Uh, I mean, it, it has been our focus throughout these years to find people that we like working with, that we enjoy working with, that represent the same values we have as a company. Um, and it's been tough because finding good talent is one thing. Finding good talent that fits in your kind of culture is another thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but but I, the way I see culture is that, of course, it will change. Like you can't keep the same things you know we can't you know interview people with a foosball table like we did in the early days <laughs> yes. anymore you know but but it's not about that it's about being in control of how it changes and knowing what are, what are the values we want to keep and what are the ones that we don't and how do we kind of control that change in a way that 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 you know favors us and not just let it grow organically and see where it ends up. I think that's where people go wrong. You know, they, they hire 50, 100 new people. They, yeah. Those 100 people start and they start defining the culture. And it's not exactly, not always the case that they define it in the way that you want to have it, yeah. right? So how did you feel that you, you were able to do that? Um, did you put any processes in place or was it just you know, how you communicate with each other? How, how did that go? I mean, a lot of it starts on the hiring. Uh, we we worked a lot on our hiring process, and we iterated on it very, uh, quite a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, so, kind of this team fit, culture fit is part of our hiring process, uh, and it's actually a very important part. So, you might be the most skilled person on the planet, but if you don't fit in, then we won't hire you. Yeah. Um, just basically, the whole idea of you know, I want to come into work and work with people that I like. Yeah. And that I, that enjoy the same sort of things. They're passionate. They're driven. That are ambitious. That want to do, you know, want to create things. Um, so I think that's that's one of the very important kind of cornerstones of of our company. And the other thing is also try to bring them together more, uh, and not only in the work environment but also in the more social environment. So having workathons, parties, you know, uh, do these like work trips. We some sometimes did these work, uh, yeah, we call them workathons, where we take the whole company offsite to somewhere and spend a week together, yeah. uh, both working and doing activities. Do you feel that that's a? Do you still that do that now? Sorry, to this day with a hundred people, is that possible to do with the whole entire company? Or yeah, I mean, we we actually did the kind of the summer theme week, just some. A month ago or so, mm-hmm. where we brought in everyone from the company to the HQ here in Copenhagen, and that went really well. We had some really high-quality presentations. We had a lot of team activities, dinners, uh, wine tasting, you know, like all kinds of gaming stuff like that. So that was still really good. Um, I think it's getting harder and harder to to plan off-site trips for hundred plus people. <laughs> yes, you know where you have to end up chartering a plane and booking a whole hotel and. Like the logistics are becoming becoming harder and harder. Rather than just the four of you in a summer house somewhere, just coding away and... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So how that will change, I don't know yet. I think maybe we'll start doing it on a more kind of smaller team basis. Maybe we'll keep these like yearly big events. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that 
just like with many other things we try to reflect on, try out things and improve as part of the process. Yeah, so I think, you know, now you've got to this point and, and you would class yourself as an established startup, scale up. What are the next steps for Airtame and yourselves, would you say? I mean, of course, we have some pretty exciting product things coming up. Uh, Which I'm guessing we can't share now by the look in your uh, face. Not not so much yet. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe next time. Yeah. Um, but but in the end, like we're still in this phase where we're maturing the company, going from, as you said, a startup to a scale-up to a real business. And part of that is, you know, a, a lot of our customers are right now education and small businesses and we're targeting larger and larger businesses and enterprises and that has different repercussions on our organization so actually whilst you touch upon that how is that been developing for different types of organizations from enterprise to education to i mean there's got to be so many different use cases and needs is that why you kind of honed in and found your your feet whilst you scale up in, in education and SME? Um, I mean, I think the like we have the best product market fit there right now. Um, but the way that we also plan the product is also to, to look at what are the more generic uses of our product and how we could develop that instead of doing something very specific and very niche for one. Like we don't want to end up being an educational tool only or mm-hmm. end up being, a, I don't know, hospitality solution. Like we want to create a kind of platform, a product that's generic enough uh, and then others can build on top of what we have if they have a very niche use case. Okay, so trying to make it as generic as possible but, but serving the needs of those customers that you still have. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, like, when we when we look at a feature, we try to take the you know eighty percent approach, where like it should work for eighty percent of our customers, regardless of where they are, um, and that seemed to work pretty okay so far. Uh, we had some very like distinct features that were required by one of the markets, like I could probably name Chromebook as one of the examples that are very specific to education and very mm-hmm. specific. To, to the US um, but we have very few of these cases and we try to stay away from them as much possible to make sure that we don't take on something that adds burden to our development and doesn't help us scale in the way that we want it seems like lessons learned from the early early days of where you would just add features because a thousand people bought it or yeah definitely and I mean, I'm not saying Chromebook is a bad choice. I think it's actually been a really good choice because we were one of the first on the market to do it. Mm-hmm. And actually that gave us a big boost uh, yep. in, in our market presence in the US. So that has totally been the right choice to do. But I think there's, we can, you can always debate, <laughs> you know, if this feature should go in or not. And in the end, we hear a lot from our customers. We have thousands and thousands of feature requests we get them from customer success we get them mm-hmm. from sales we have um, user researchers we have product managers we have yeah managers that go out and, and talk to clients and, and hear what they need so we have a ton of data and we're trying to boil it down into something usable that we can use I was gonna ask, how, how do you deal with that is it just by public consensus or is it just you know making sure that alignment is, is there and fitting for, for what you need or how, how do you now get features out 
it's it's always a question of what's most important so obviously there's some things that block sales and there's stuff from the qa you know if we have some high priority box that we need to look at um, there's problems that customer success describe about maybe setup is hard or whatever and there's obviously the kind of product direction that we and product strategy that we want to take the company to um, and and it's always a balance of these different i kind of list you could say mm -hmm. on what we prioritize right now versus later versus in a couple of years yeah it's uh and the prioritization i'm guessing becomes harder and harder as you get more and more things that you want to build in um uh, one question probably is like, you start off with one form factor you now have the air team too is it a case of where you will then keep to looking to iterate and say the technology is there for us or could you feel that there could be a form factor that you would finally stick with or or is the business now looking to see how is it a generational thing where we have to keep on updating and, and utilizing new parts um, i mean long term we would like to build up a product portfolio of devices uh, so the form factor is in itself somewhat irrelevant on how it looks mm -hmm. Um, what's important is how we communicate it out. And one of the considerations with the Airtim 2 was that we wanted it to be more present in a room. Um, so people, when they walk in there, and even if the TV is off, they are kind of aware that this is an airtime enabled room. So actually, one of the things beforehand is that you wanted to be as obtruse as possible and, and away and hidden. But then because of the way that you're using it now, you want it to be the other way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is, I mean, this is a problem that we've identified from our users. You know, we have guests come in, we have employees come in and they don't even know it's there. It's, it's hidden mm -hmm. behind the TV. Uh, and if the TV is turned off, they don't even get any message. Um, so it's a way that we can make sure that people are aware that the product is there. We can have this kind of sleek, sleek uh, Scandinavian design product on the wall. that looks nice. Um, and it also creates this awareness around the company and brand that, that we're building up. Okay. So I think, you know, with that in mind, I mean, you, you have your feature list set up, you have um, yourself busy for the next coming years, to say the least. Uh, is there going to be an Airtime 3? No comment. <laughs> oh, you see how I tried to do that, everyone. I, I tried for everyone, just, <laughs> you know, just in case. Um, but at some point, for sure. I mean, uh, one of the learnings we had from the Airtime 1 is that we need to be more proactive on, you know, refreshing our hardware portfolio. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that we've, we've we've worked on to make a sort of hardware strategy going forward. So at some point we will definitely deprecate Airtime two and then start introducing some sort of Airtime three. Okay. So how do you see the you know the the future of of this kind of technology? Where where do you see it going into? You, you, you moved into to. The, other products uh, so away from media streaming pure media mm. streaming for example where do you see it going from this point yeah good question so we've, we've been talking a lot about this in, in the kind of team that we have the executive team and also to figure out how do we want to you know go from you know being a wireless streaming product into something more and we identify that our passion in the end with the whole thing with the kind of vision and mission of the company is to um, enhance you know collaboration communication uh, yeah, performance um, within companies and, and organizations education in general mm -hmm. um, 
And of course, like going into meeting room and starting your screen sharing is one nice small first step in that. This is kind of a Trojan horse for us to be in a company. It solves mm -hmm. a, a real pain that people have right now. And, you know, we never had problems explaining this to, to users. They always get it in, in, an, no. in an instant. Uh, but it's only a small step for us. Like there's so much more we could build on top that helps this kind of collaboration, communication. Um, so one of the things we did after we have the screen sharing is we introduced this internal kind of digital signage tool. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that is how to use the screens while they're on, but they're not being streamed to. Yeah. Like when, when no one is actively using them. So, so that's one of the things that we're working on to create this sort of app store where you can have different applications that are customized for a TV, that have content made for the TV, mm -hmm. which helps you either get the right data you need with KPIs and graphs and information or communicate about events or lunch menu or like basic stuff um, and, and kind of facilitate that sort of you could we could call we call it internal communication within yeah. companies or organizations okay um and that's our next step but of course there's there's more to, the, to it than, than <laughs> there's a few the more bits in there yeah. as well well i mean ultimately is that you know th this is a journey that has taken you from from your university times into to where you are now and you know you feel that is this process is taking you quite a way into also learning about building a company um, is it a case where you guys uh, want to go as far as humanly possible and say that we want to have a thousand people working on this or where do you see the company as a whole moving forward is it you know I mean f for us right now it's it's less relevant on how many people we are it's more relevant on what we want to achieve and in this market that we are in we're getting more and more competition it's important that we we you know we we push the envelope further we're we're progressing we're innovating we're creating new things mm -hmm. um so and in the, in that sense we need to scale up the company for sure because the way we're progressing is too slow is that why you know copenhagen itself or denmark isn't a very large populous nation is that why you had to look towards having other offices or was that because it served a particular need to grow outside of Denmark? It's, it's both in the end. Um, our US office, for example, is there because our US is our biggest market mm -hmm. um, and we need to be present there. We need more kind of touch points with our customers. We need to, to help them and we need to get to know them better. Um, and that's also why we're opening up an LA office now in, in California to, you know, be there as well and and get to know our customers mm -hmm. um, and then from a kind of company perspective in general yeah i mean hi hiring people is hard uh, also hard in copenhagen but it's actually hard everywhere more or less mm -hmm. uh, we're experimenting now with the budapest office uh, this is quite a new thing that we just launched this summer yep. so we're still learning about the market and how to get out there and where to find candidates and how to approach them. Um, but it's certainly a way that we would be able to grow faster. Does that then impact the, the cultural fit of, of people within the organization still? Or it's still like-minded people, no matter if they're from Budapest or if they're from LA or if they're from New York? It's just... 
We, I mean, we believe that it shouldn't impact because we already have 30 plus nationalities in the company. So we have a very culturally diverse company and we, we like it because we learn a lot from each other yeah. and we, uh, yeah, it's very, very interesting to, you know, talk to people and get to know their backgrounds and how they see the world. Um, so in that sense, I don't see that these offices, they would be too different. I think one thing that we pay a lot of attention to is that every office should feel like home in some way. So to air, to being an air tamer, air tamer. Or, or or the home is in where they're from. No, the as in being an air tamer. So like if you're in Copenhagen, the Copenhagen office, uh, you're based here. Then going to Budapest or going to New York or LA or wherever should feel like you're in kind of the same atmosphere, mm-hmm. and it's the same thing all the way around. Um, I'd be interesting to see some some Danish Copenhagen cozy in the brashness of LA. That would be an interesting part to see. But, you yeah, know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course, there will be slight differences. And, of course, you can't avoid that. But yeah. overall, like somehow we're striving to do that. We don't want to have a completely different feel and environment. Same thing with Budapest. I mean, of course, we can hire a lot of Hungarian people and we will. Uh, but it's a pretty hard requirement that they should speak English well. Example. Yeah. So we don't want to have a team that only <laughs> speaks Hungarian, and then when someone goes there, then no one knows how to talk to them or something like that. It's a very extreme example, right? Yeah. But <laughs> no, fair enough. Well, I mean, like it's super, super interesting to hear the the story for one for where you've come from, and 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 you know how your one of the first Christmas presents in the computer shaped the way that you took your viewpoint onto life, and and how. Even working and looking at side projects can doesn't mean that it's your main thing at that moment in time. Would also allow you to kind of experience other things at the same time. Uh, and does that still stem to now? By the way, can I just ask? Yeah, it this? does. I mean, I still okay. have a lot of side, <laughs> side projects. projects as well. Okay, so I mean, in, and then you know, kind of forming the team and bring together uh, a group that that could come up with an idea and execute to now where you know you you are in charge of a lot of people and into four offices and what are the next steps uh, to round it up for, for for yourself and and where do you take this i mean f- from my side um i i really like what i'm doing i really like the the learnings that i get with this i think this is a unique opportunity for me to progress and kind of understand different sides of the businesses um business i mean i've i've learned a lot from you know to mark for marketing to like how to do hardware production to how to organize teams to how to manage people like everything that you don't learn in university uh, yeah and this is one of the reasons i actually never finished my degree because <laughs> in in the end the way i saw it was that the value and the lessons that i learned here in real life matter so much more to me than the piece of paper that I'll get in the end. So the piece of paper, you didn't manage to, to get that? No, I never got my master's. I only missed my thesis project. and I just So you're in the very last bit of it. your master's degree, which you're yes. too busy. Do you regret not getting your master's or, or the fact, would you like to go back and do an MBA? Or do you feel that actually all the things that you've learned now, if even shipping 5,000 units to Australia and, and the elements of that, those, you know, is that something that could, is more worthwhile to you than to, than that piece of paper? I mean, 
I, I'm, I don't regret not finishing my master. Mm -hmm. uh, my family does. That's another, <laughs> that's another story. But <laughs> they regret that you didn't, or the fact that they <laughs> <laughs> they, they they always ask about it. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's been a topic for a while. Uh, to me, university was about putting structure in my head, um, learning how to approach problems. Um, exploring different fields um, so i wasn't one that you know was very focused on one area but mm -hmm. i tried to like pick different subjects and topics from computer security to graphics to hardware to whatever and and try to like widen my 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 my, my kind of vision of things um, and i feel like i got that from university so no. i don't miss you know going back and say oh now i have this paper well it's Basically, the last six weeks of work you didn't do. Yeah. Of all well, the, it's, it's the five a, it's years. It's half of. a year, but still, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Fair enough. Well, again, Attila, thank you very much for the time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear the story. So I'm guessing if there are any developers out there or anyone that wants to join a really cool company in Denmark, I'm guessing they should look towards Airtame if you're the right fit. Yeah, by the sound definitely. Of it. <laughs> yeah, and thanks a lot, James, for having me. I mean, it's super fun. Absolute pleasure. So... Yep, thanks again, and uh, until next time. Thanks again to Attila for sharing his story with us. It's great to hear from the perspective of the CTO and what it means to have an idea and really run with it. If you're still with us, thanks for listening all the way through. Please take a moment to rate and let others know what you thought of this podcast. If you'd like to join our online community and continue the conversation, you can follow us at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, at Startup42. That's at Startup42. Until next time, I'm James Digby, and you've been listening to the Danish Game Changers podcast by Startup42 Media. <laughs>